From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are Katherine Gibson, VOA Congressional Correspondent, and Steve Reddish, VOA Executive Editor. Welcome, Katherine and Steve. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Well, here are the issues. Four U.S. police officers told a congressional investigating committee in tearful, gripping detail how an angry mob rampaged through the U.S. Capitol building last January 6th in an attempt to block certification of Democrat Joe Biden's victory in last November's presidential election. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi appointed the nine members of the House Select Committee, including two vocal Republican Trump critics. The Senate has voted to begin work on a nearly $1 trillion national infrastructure plan after weeks of tense efforts. The White House and bipartisan groups of senators agreed on major provisions of the package, which are key to President Biden's agenda. President Biden said the U.S. will end its combat mission in Iraq this year and instead assist Iraqi forces. The U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, has updated its guidance on mask wearing and recommends that vaccinated people in parts of the country wear masks while indoors, reversing a decision it made two months ago. American gymnastics superstar Simone Biles withdrew from Thursday's all-around competition to focus on her mental well-being. The decision came a day after Biles removed herself from the team final following one rotation because she felt she wasn't mentally ready. Well, those are the issues, and let's get started. Catherine, I will start with you. The investigation into the attack on the Capitol on January 6th opened with the video footage of the four police officers begging for help as rioters overwhelmed them and their testimony was very riveting. What message was the House panel trying to send in starting off with the video of the attack and having the four officers relive those moments? Well, I think this was a very considered decision on the part of that House panel to begin with the testimony of law enforcement officers, two U.S. Capitol police officers, and then two D.C. Metropolitan police officers to really emphasize the fact that this is something where a situation where law enforcement was put in extremely grave danger. And ironically, many of the rioters were carrying flags that called for support of Blue Lives Matter. The House Select Committee wanted to really draw the contrast between support of the police among Trump supporters and their actual actions on that day. It was a very well-considered decision to show, look, this is something that deeply impacted these officers mentally, physically. They were put in very grave danger, despite what some Republicans have said in the months since that riot, calling it just a simple tourist visit, nothing harmful, that this was really not the riot that's been described. By playing that actual video evidence, they were able to directly refute those assertions. Steve, in looking at how the panel was created, House Minority Republican Leader Kevin McCarthy had named five Republicans to the panel, but House Speaker Nancy Pelosi rejected two staunch Trump supporters. That was Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio and Jim Banks of Indiana, who was biased against the investigation. McCarthy then withdrew his other three appointments. 
So the two Republicans now on the committee, Liz Cheney of Wyoming and Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, are known critics of former President Trump. So how will this play out with no one representing Trump's side of this? It's an interesting tactic that the Republicans have taken. They had the chance to have an independent commission formed to investigate the attack, much like the widely accepted commission that investigated the September 11, 2001 attacks on the U.S. Democrats and Republicans in the House of Representatives agreed on a commission and agreed to many of the Republican demands to have an equal representation of Democrats and Republicans on this commission, as well as an end date of the end of December 31st, 2021, to be able to put out and publish a report of their findings, which Republicans wanted because that way it doesn't spill over to 2022, which is a midterm election year. All of Congress is up for re-election, and one-third of the Senate is up for re-election next year. This is a politically charged issue, but Republicans in the Senate blocked an independent commission. And the result is Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, a Democrat, decided she would investigate with a House Select Committee chosen of people that she would choose and people that the Republican leader would choose. However, Democrats would have the majority on that committee. And no doubt the hearings that we saw will continue and spill over into the 2022 election year. And I don't see the logic in the Republican strategy to pull out totally from these hearings because now they are left with nobody to be able to push back to certainly represent President Trump and defend President Trump in this situation. So the Republicans will continue to go without that kind of representation, that kind of pushback in these hearings, and the hearings will continue and will be as compelling and as riveting down the road as it was last week. Yes, that's a very interesting tactic that the Republicans have taken on this. And then looking at the investigative panel that they could subpoena numerous witnesses, possibly including former President Donald Trump, to testify about what they knew ahead of the confrontation and as it was unfolding. So do either of you see this possibly happening? I certainly see this possibly happening. You know, the chair of the House Select Committee, Representative Thompson, has already said that they're going to move quickly to those subpoenas. They said members of that committee have been alerted that they should not plan on having their full August six-week recess, that they may come back and hold another hearing soon within the next few weeks. I think they want to move quickly on this and keep up this momentum from a very intense emotional hearing. You know, we've already seen so much evidence of the riot already in that second impeachment trial of former President Trump earlier this year. But it was really striking to me to see new evidence come out in this hearing. And I think that the Democrats on that committee are going to want to build on that momentum. It's said to be 10,000 hours of video that has to be gone through to look at in preparation for all of these hearings. That's a lot of video evidence that is somewhat unimpeachable as far as what happened that day. It's rather striking how this is going to be moved fast. One thing regarding the subpoenas and moving fast on those subpoenas is that 
legal blocks can be raised. A subpoena can be issued. Someone can say, the former president won't let me uh, testify. I have executive privilege. One thing that the Biden Justice Department has done is said that they will not defend claims of executive privilege when it comes to the January 6th attack on the Capitol building, which means it is likely that people who were around President Trump were working in the White House on that day will be compelled to testify. And their privilege of saying, well, I was working for the president and he has to allow me to testify. That may hold up in court, but it will not be supported by the White House and the executive branch, which is an important part of this whole process of getting witnesses to testify up on Capitol Hill. Good points there that you all brought out, and we will continue to cover this as they work to get to the root of what caused this attack on the Capitol. Now on to successful infrastructure talks where the Senate has agreed to take up Biden's infrastructure bill. So, Catherine, what does this deal now signal to the world? It signals to the world that there actually is some bipartisan cooperation up on Capitol Hill. We have that group of 10 senators who are able to hammer out the details of this deal. We don't have a full text of the bill yet. That's something that they'll be negotiating as they're moving to debate on Capitol Hill this week. But we do know that the overall number is about $550 billion with $110 billion for roads, bridges, major infrastructure projects. And President Biden is saying that this is really going to be a job creator for the American people. It's going to get people all across the country, not just in the cities, but in the interior. After this COVID shutdown that has worried so many, where so many have lost their jobs, this will hopefully jumpstart the economy. And I think we're going to see senators move quickly on this now that they have had that vote to debate. They always want to leave town for the August recess quickly. And as we know, the U.S. Senate does everything very slowly until they have to do it very quickly. And I think they have to do it very quickly now. So we should be seeing some more details coming out soon. Also, Steve, the Senate rules require 60 votes in the evenly split 50-50 chamber to proceed for consideration and ultimately pass this bill, meaning support from both parties. So will this bill get the final support? In the Senate, it probably should. There will be amendments offered. As Catherine mentioned, the text of the legislation still has to be finalized. It's a major accomplishment that the Senate split evenly 50-50 was able to get 10 Republicans to sign on, as, as Catherine mentioned. But it's still not a sure thing, because when the Senate votes and makes its final vote on this bill, which may come before they go away for August recess, and hopefully that will happen. Then it goes to the House of Representatives, where the Democrats there are a lot more progressive than the Democrats in the Senate. The Republicans in the House of Representatives are much more hardened against anything that the Democrats do. So trying to get the exact text of what the Senate sends over to the House is going to be almost impossible, which means the House is going to add their own amendments, add their own language to this bill. Once it passes the House, it goes back to the Senate. So all of the language can be merged and a final bill can be crafted. That is where I think the fault line lies. If Democrats in the House of Representatives add a lot of money, add a lot of other items to this bill, 
then it could be something that Senate Republicans and some Senate Democrats may not be able to digest, and the whole thing could blow up. I'm trying to be confident, and hopefully this thing moves forward, because American voters have been teased for years that Congress will pass such a major infrastructure bill to build and rebuild and repair roads, bridges, rail systems that are all showing their age. Most of these built in the mid to early 1900s. Well said. Those are some really good points that you brought out with this. Moving along to the next topic, President Biden announced he is concluding a U.S. combat mission in Iraq at their request, but will assist Iraq against ISIS if they should become a major issue there. So what does this say about Biden's foreign policy, Catherine, on this new phase of cooperation that the U.S. will be entering? So what we know is that we are leaving about 2,300 U.S. personnel in Iraq. They're being reclassified to a different designation, you know, support personnel that are going to maintain a presence in Iraq. And I think that speaks to the importance of Iraq and the way it figures into Biden's foreign policy. You know, he remembers when President Barack Obama, who, of course, he was vice president for back in 2011, had pulled troops out of Iraq and then saw ISIS move into that territory and had to move the U.S. back in there. So while we're completely pulling out of Afghanistan, and we're saying that there's no chance of building a stable democracy there. We are maintaining a presence in Iraq because the U.S. does have that memory of what happened with ISIS almost a decade ago, and we don't want to see a repeat of that. Biden is continuing his foreign policy changes and trying to bring America's wars over the last 20 years to an end. He said in his speech a few weeks ago regarding the pullout of Afghanistan was that the wars and military strategies developed 20 years ago to fight terrorism no longer applies. As he said, we have to meet the enemy where they are, and his military and diplomatic advisors are pushing forward a new strategy to move American military to fight terrorism from a safer place in Afghanistan. It, the war on terror, so to speak, will be prosecuted from aircraft carriers and bases outside of Afghanistan. And in Iraq, these 2,300 troops who are going to, to stay will be advising, but not participating in combat, staying out of the fray, trying to let the Iraqi forces defend themselves while still having enough power, enough force there to be able to deal with terrorist threats, threats that impact America and American interests abroad. One of those interests is keeping an eye on Iran and having enough intelligence, enough manpower there to be able to keep an eye and monitor what Iran is doing, especially in Iraq and elsewhere in the region. Great. Thanks for bringing Iran into that. That was going to be my next question. But we're up now for a quick break. And when we come back, we'll discuss the latest CDC recommendations as variants of COVID-19 continue to surge.
Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panelists who are joining me via Skype. Catherine Gibson, VOA Congressional Correspondent, and Steve Reddish, VOA Executive Editor. Well, the CDC recommends to maximize protection from the Delta variant and prevent possibly spreading it to others, wearing a mask indoors in public if you are in an area of substantial or high transmission. Some see the CDC decision as controversial, alleging that it will undermine the faith in vaccines, which prevent nearly all severe infection, hospitalization, and death from COVID-19. Your thoughts on this, Catherine? I think that what they're concerned about is this group of people who, quite frankly, were not following the mask wearing recommendations to begin with, who were not had that vaccine hesitancy. And that's why you're seeing this recommendation for the high spread areas. That's why, you know, we see the Delta variant spreading because people did not get the vaccine in the early spring, early summer. And now they have to control that and say, you know, look, Everyone has to be wearing the mask. Otherwise, it's going to single out those people who have not gotten the vaccine. But of course, there was some criticism of the CDC decision back in May to tell people that they could indeed stop wearing masks. There was a lot of speculation that it was too soon because of the low vaccine inoculation rates in some parts of the country. And so there's going to be a lot of second guessing of why the CDC had everyone take those masks off so soon in May. Also, the Capitol attending physician Brian Monahan said that the House of Representatives is reinstating its mask mandate and the threat of fines possibly to members who don't comply. In addition, it appears the White House appears to be going back to mandated masks. So these are mandates even if you have been vaccinated. So what is some reaction to this up on Capitol Hill? Well, we actually saw some of the House Republicans pushing back on that mask mandate right on the House floor this week. One of them, Representative Bobert, had been asked to wear her mask on the House floor and aide walked up with a mask to her and asked her to wear it. And she actually threw that mask at the aide. It's been a back and forth on Capitol Hill about this mask wearing. There's been some tussles. There's been House Republicans saying that they don't feel if they're vaccinated that they have to wear it. What is important to remember is that the U.S. House of Representatives is going on the August recess. So they're not actually back on the House floor after this week giving votes until September 20th. So that's hopefully some time for people to get used to this, for the Delta variant to slow its spread. And we'll have to reevaluate the situation when everybody comes back to Capitol Hill in late September. The vaccination rates and the vaccination hesitancy is the big issue in this whole mask mandate controversy. Because if you look at the data, the vaccination rates are higher in states won by Joe Biden. They are lower in states won by Donald Trump. It's a corollary that you wouldn't expect as far as a major health issue, 
to be governed by politics, but it certainly is. One of the highlights of last week was from a the Alabama governor, a Republican, in a state that Donald Trump won handily, who came out and said that it is the unvaccinated people who are letting us down and they're being misled by misinformation and they need to get vaccinated. The overwhelming majority of people hospitalized and those who are dying from COVID are the unvaccinated. So the mask mandate is just yet another issue that goes to the whole, do you get vaccinated, do you not? Is this something where I have my rights to my body and I'm not going to get vaccinated, but then you put your neighbor at risk by not being vaccinated. So we're going to go through this for quite a while. That said, there has been an uptick in people getting vaccinated over the past week. And I think a lot of that comes from politicians, Republican politicians who are saying, follow the science. Yes. And just to add that there could be some medical reasons as well, why people are not getting the vaccine. And just wanted to get to our last topic with just a few minutes to spare. Catherine, your thoughts on American superstar gymnast Simone Biles withdrawing from Thursday's all-round competition to focus on her mental health. Right. I think what was so interesting about this is that it was really a moment for a discussion about mental health, which, as we know, is still somewhat of a taboo subject in the United States, particularly when we're talking about women's mental health and the mental health of people and women of color. So I think this might be something of a turning point that Simone Biles has triggered by her decision to withdraw from competition. There was a lot of back and forth on social media here in the United States about whether or not she had let down Team USA or some people praising her, saying that this was a brave, courageous moment when she put her own well-being and self-care first. Drilling down into the details, you know, think about gymnastics, which is an incredibly demanding physical sport. And you really have to be mentally prepared to be doing some of these moves, which are quite frankly, pretty dangerous. And there's a gymnastics term called the twisties, which reportedly Biles had gotten and understood her own limits and understood that she would not be able to compete at that Olympic level that she wanted to and was able to step back and say, look, this is an opportunity where my teammates can step in and be more physically and mentally prepared than I am. And that's really what was at issue here is that she knew her own limits and she knew what was best for her own team. It takes as much courage to be able to perform on a stage as large as the Olympics as it does to know that you cannot perform and be able to walk away and let another teammate step up. There's been a lot of criticism about Biles' decision, but these athletes, first of all, they were on track to be at peak condition for Olympic performance in 2020, not in 2021. So when you set that goal line back another year, that is yet another burden on the whole mental strategies and mental preparedness for such a performance. If you're trained to let your body do what it does naturally and create this muscle memory to accomplish the brilliance that Simone Biles has given us for years, and you start thinking about it and let that little moment of doubt seep in, that's enough to be able to just crash 
uh, performance and risk injury. And I think Simone Biles needs to be given a lot of praise for not just standing up to her own issues and not risk further injury, but also give another person on her team the opportunity to perform and be able to do better than she would have been able to do. Well said on both of your parts for bringing up really important issues and just not being a world-famous athlete, but some of the mental issues that go along with that. And of course, we wish Simone the best in the coming days, regardless of whether she decides to participate further or not in the Olympics. She will always be a role model for other young women and just people everywhere around the world in general for putting her health before a medal. Well, I'll have to end on that note. My thanks go to Katherine Gibson, VOA Congressional Correspondent, and Steve Reddish, VOA Executive Editor. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News.